So um, well, this evening, I, 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 I wanted to, I thought we might get straight in to the business of uh, thinking about the rule. I, I do feel that um, the Omni community is an ever-deepening ever presence within the world community. As you know, last year was our 25th anniversary of uh, sort of naming the community at the John Main Seminar with Father Bede at uh, New Harmony, Indiana. Um, goes back further, I suppose, to 1975 when John Main started the first meditation center at his monastery in London. But um, throughout those decades, the Oblate community has been growing, deepening, and sometimes, you know, in a very mysterious way, without a lot of organization, without a lot of, of connection, without online groups. Uh, I think we only started the Oblate newsletter well, some years ago. So there was something invisible and uh, but very strong, some very strong filament of faith that uh, that held it together and allowed it to to develop. Um, and we here represent uh, a very interesting and beautiful sort of microcosm or timeline of of that this reality of the old Lake community. When, when did, what year did you become an old Lake, Greg? 81. 81. Mm -hmm. So you came up to Montreal with, your, with uh, mm -hmm. uh, Liz and, and, mm -hmm. and the girls. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. but, and, and what year, Polly and Magda and Fred, what year do you remember? Remember what? What? Well, no. no, for me it was in the fall of 77, so, Father John, the first time, Talk, I was there. 77, gosh. So that's uh, your, what's that, 40 years, is it? Yeah. Good Lord. Congratulations. <laughs> you don't look it. <laughs> and Polly, when you, and Mark, so you, you Polly and Mark, and, and, and I don't think Fred, Fred came later, didn't he? Fred came later. Ah, yes. I followed like usually good men follow wives. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's right. And uh, so who's the, the newest oblate? I think, uh, who's the newest oblate? Victor. Where's Victor? When did you become? When did you start? In January. January this year? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're getting, you're getting on now. So. <laughs> and Beth, when did, when did you start? 2008, ah yes, you spent a year in London, yes. Yeah. So, we, we represent a, a pretty interesting and rather rare uh, spectrum, historical spectrum, um, 70, 40 years, 40 years. And um, we're now, as you know, facing uh, and entering into a new a new chapter with Bombo. And uh, tomorrow night, I think, we'll show you some more pictures about it and talk about it and talk about what it means for the uh, whole world community. So 
big step of faith, but it's a confident step of faith. And uh, at the heart of, of that uh, venture will be an oblate community, a group of uh, men and women, some married, some single, uh, some older, some younger, who will be um, living uh, the oblate life, the spirit of the rule, uh, at the heart of the Bombo um, community and venture, uh, practicing all the essential uh, wisdoms of the rule, the wisdom of hospitality, the wisdom of regularity of prayer, the wisdom of compassion and, and creativity and work and prayer and so on. So, uh, it's very, uh, it's very mysterious and, and yet at the same time very, well, very clear in a way and very meaningful to me to see how the Oblate community is growing at the heart of the evolution of the world community, that seed that was planted by John Main. And if you go back right to the beginning, I can remember it would have been about 1975 or even 70, probably 75 or 4, actually. I went to see John Lane, had just come back from Washington. And he, he came back because he had realized he wanted to come back to his own monastic community. And he wanted to open a new, move into a new chapter in his own life, which was had been had been turned and opened by uh, his rediscovery of meditation uh, some years before, and having integrated this into his into his life and having begun to, to share it with other people, including me, uh, rather unsuccessfully at that time. Uh, he came back with this sense of calling to make the teaching, the sharing of meditation, the new center of his monastic vocation. He came back and with his characteristic persuasiveness, he persuaded the abbot and community of the monastery to dedicate a house for a group of lay people who would live there for extended time of retreat, learning to meditate and living a quite very regular and, and quite focused uh, contemplative life. And I remember going to visit him there one winter evening in this house that he had he had renewed, he had redecorated and you know had got money from the monastery to to get it uh, to, to, to renew it. Slightly smaller than Bombo, but uh, uh, same principle. And uh, but he nobody had moved in yet. And I went to see him there, and we were talking. And I think I asked him at that point if, if he if I could go and join uh, that uh, initial community for a few for a few months. And he was a little uncertain about whether I would be able to uh, to do it or whether it would be good for me. Or for them, maybe, and uh, 
And I remember making a joke because the house, he was alone in the house and uh, nobody else had moved in yet. And it was just, just him living there. And I said, well, you know, like somebody who's built a great skyscraper, sort of Trump Tower. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, how do you know anybody's going to come? Perhaps it wasn't a very kind joke to make, but uh, anyway, he took it, he, he, he joked, he laughed about it. And, uh, and of course, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the, of the community experience that grows out of the practice of meditation. And there was no doubt he, he knew that this was going to happen, that he could see this was what he had to do. I'm sure he, you know, he just couldn't read the future. But he knew uh, from his own immersion in the present that this would be the direction he was, he was meant to move in. And of course, soon after we started the uh, little lay community there, um, people began to knock on the door from around the parish and other parts of London as they heard what was happening, that these a small group was being introduced to Christian meditation, and they said, why not us? Why, why are we being left out? If it's not only for monks, then, but, and then you've got these lay people, you're teaching it to them, so we can't give up our homes, leave our families, uh, but we would like to learn also. And I must say at that moment, he was a little uncertain about whether how to respond to that, because he was very, he was very focused upon the, the silence of the house and the contemplative uh, ambience of the house and the focus for, the, for, these, for this community. And so he wondered, I remember talking about it with him, you know, would, it, would it be disturbing to the quiet of the house if uh, we had weekly meditation groups coming in or other people coming in? And it didn't take him long to realize that you know, this was a, an invitation of the Spirit and something that we couldn't really say no to. And so the first meditation groups began to form. They would come each week. And rather than disturbing the silence of the house, of course, they, they deepened it and made us aware of just how rich and deep was the uh, work that was being done there. So we can go back that far at least uh, to, to, to see how the oblate community that we now are, how that has developed. And then, of course, after uh, in, uh, in 1990, when uh, we started the International Center in London, and when the um, community in Montreal uh, it, you know, it dissolved in a way or, or spread in different ways. Uh, that was also a very challenging moment for the oblate community because um, there was no longer this strong anchor in a physical building. And it, it had put a bit, it had put a, a strain on the, on this the fledgling monastic community that we had so many visitors and, and, and people were, were, were really identifying very deeply psychically with the uh, with the community as oblates of a monastery 
often do. And uh, this is a, an important major distinction, of course, between our community, the oblate community, uh, and other oblate communities, uh, which have physical monasteries to which they are attached or to which they belong. And so this concept uh, evolved, you know, through through some conflict and through some some pain and and through uh, through through a testing. And what happened was that the oblates of the priory, which was no longer there in its in its original form, uh, began to think, well, what about us? What's happening to us? And what happened was simply that they stayed together. Spiritually, they were one. And uh, the great majority of them, I think, stayed uh, together. And we didn't know how, where, it was a bit like wandering in the, in, the, in, the, in the desert, you know, in Exodus. We didn't quite know where it was going or how it would evolve. But we, we hung in there together and stayed on the trek, stayed on the pilgrimage. And as the years uh, passed, we began to realize that there was a, a new kind of oblate identity developing. And it was not abstract, but it was lived, first of all, and then it was described, and it was understood, and the best things happened like that. And what we realized was, of course, that this was a monastery without walls, and that the oblates were not oblates of a monastery, they were the monastery. They didn't belong to a monastery, but they were the members of the monastery itself. And, um, and, and this, this was, a, this, it was and is a rather uh, original kind of definition, and it's not for everybody. There are people, you know, who feel called to live in the spirit of the rule, but they also feel they need a physical monastery that they can go to regularly and feel that they belong to that particular community. And that's why we, we always, you know, one of, the, one of the ways we test the calling of somebody to the WCCM uh, of the community is precisely that, you know, do you understand what kind of monastery this is, that you are you are the monastery. You will be, you will be one of the, one of the essential members. And uh, over, you know, on several occasions over the years, my abbot uh, said to me, you know, well, you've got all these oblates. Who are they oblates of? So I said, well, they're oblates. They are oblates of a monastery without walls. And he said, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, monastery without walls. So, uh, so I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's make them oblates of Cockfosters, you know, my monastery at that time, or oblates of, the, of, of uh, Monte Oliveto. I said, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't think we should do that, you know. You, you, you. So, uh, so it, just, it just continued to evolve with, I think, the wisdom of the Benedictine mind at its best, which was to see that the Lord is bringing something <coughs> to, to pass, and it, it takes time for it to, to, to form, to shape, and you just give it time, you know? Let it discern 
how it uh, grows. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, um, and then there was a quite an important turning point when uh, Trish Panton, who was the uh, international oblate coordinator uh, before Eileen Dutt, um, I, Trish in Australia asked me one day, I, and I had vaguely heard about an oblate congress taking place in Rome. The abbot's uh, primate had quite a little controversially organized a uh, oblate, uh, oblate conference, was planning an oblate congress from oblates from all monasteries from all around the world. And she said, are we going to be represented at this? So I said, well, I think, I said, you write to him <laughs> and explain who we are. And so she did. And she ended up organizing this Congress. <laughs> she was a great organizer. Or one of the primary organizers. And, uh, and with you know, great openness and creativity and imagination, they, uh, they, they welcomed uh, a group of our oblates and invited me to give a talk, uh, the opening talk on the, the contemplative oblate today. And uh, we didn't fit into any pre-existing category. And some of the, some of the, uh, some of the oblates from some, maybe some more conservative parts of the world were a little sort of uh, suspicious of, uh, about us because uh, we didn't quite fit in, we weren't uh, conventional. But um, so there, was a, there was a little bit of disturbance about that, but the abbot primate was helped to calm it down, and so it settled down. And uh, so this year, uh, this well, I think also the last year I didn't go, but uh, this year, is it, is it this year or next year? This year, there's a, another congress, uh, and it's been um, organized with with, with our help as well, and now they have quotas uh, for voting members. So any, any oblate, any of you who wanted to go, can go. And I think we've been given a quota of three or four uh, voting members. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're there. And again, we, we form a slightly indefinable entity but a very clear reality. So, there's a brief history of the WCCM Obmates. And I do think we're um, moving into some new, new chapters and new, new forms. Uh, I'm very struck by the um, attraction that, uh, that, that young people feel towards the Oblate uh, path towards the formation process, towards the idea of commitment, towards the idea of structuring a day around certain spiritual principles and practices. Um, and that once meditation has become uh, part of their life and they want to make it a secure part of their life, for some of them, the oblate path and identity uh, is a very attractive <coughs> option. And I just received uh, two young men as uh, in their final oblations, one in 
um, Hong Kong and the other in the Philippines just uh, last week. So, and I think with, with Bombo, uh, this is going to take on some new, new direction and new um, interest. So I hope that after this weekend, we'll be able to reflect together and uh, be open to the ways in which the Spirit will lead us to serve the mission of the world community um, and to see a little more clearly what particular kind of gift and inspiration the oblate path within the world community uh, can contribute to its work and to his mission. Any comments or thoughts about any of that? Where's the Congress going to be this year? Yeah, in Rome. Oh, yeah. It's there every year? Mm -hmm. uh, not every year. I think it's every three years or four years, maybe. Anybody here going? Uh, we have about uh, 12 or 15 going <coughs> different parts of the world. So I think the important thing for us uh, this weekend is to, is to be listeners, to listen to the call that Benedict describes <coughs> in the prologue, the call of God that comes to us out of the crowd, out of the, the busy shopping mall of our lives, and uh, calling us by name, calling us into self-knowledge and self-discovery, and calling us at the same time into community, and asking a very simple question. What is the question? What does, what does the Spirit ask? Hmm? Who is there? Who is there? Who, who is there that uh, wants to run this path? Something like that. Is there anyone here who yearns for life and desires to see good days? If you hear this and your answer is, I do, God then directs these words to you. If you desire true and eternal life, and so on. What, run while you have the light of life, that the darkness of death may not overtake you. This is the first of many uh, instances in the rule where Benedict uses this image of running and speed. Uh, it's a different kind of running, a different kind of speed from the, the, the life in the multitude, as he calls it. Uh, but it's running. It's, it's, it's not... Uh, vegetating, it's not uh, stagnating. Uh, for him, the, the, the life in the monastery, whether it's with walls or without walls, the life in the monastery is, uh, is, is a journey uh, made at a certain speed without wasting any time. If there's anything he really doesn't like, it's the idea of idleness or wasting time. Um, but at the same, at the same time, to, 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 make, to make haste slowly, 
in stillness and to, to find in the rhythm of one's daily life the, the stillness that we practice in the times of meditation. So I'd just like to uh, lead us into the, the time of retreat that we share, um, looking at a, the chapter uh, on chapter six on on silence or restraint of speech, as it's sometimes just um, translated. And it's a rather a strange chapter in some ways. I think when you read the rule, you can question it. Uh, and it's good to also use a commentary. We know a lot, a lot of the first commentary we'd recommend is Sister Joan's uh, commentary on the rule, which is very good. It breaks the ice. It gets people to um, uh, see what the rule is about and uh, feel familiar with it. And she's very good at dealing with a couple of the tricky uh, bits that turn people off sometimes. I, beating children and uh, <laughs> recalcitrant monks and excommunicating people and so on. So she handles that very, very well and explains really what it means and puts it in context. Um, but there are other commentaries on the rule, a very good one by Adelbert de Vogue, uh, great scholar of both of the rule and of early monastic uh, rules before the rule of Benedict. And it was Adelbert de Vogue, if you may remember, who wrote the wonderful little essay uh, after John Main died uh, for monastic studies from John Cassian to John Main. Have you all seen that? Okay, so we should, we should see that. Um, and he describes how Cassian is the, a bridge between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And he sees John Main as a kind of bridge between the Christian and the non-Christian world uh, today. And uh, this is this is this is a, one of the very great scholars. I mean, detailed scholars. A lot of his work is you know, very detailed textual analysis. Um, and he says the great genius of John Main adds something to the Benedictine tradition something that is, in a sense, missing in the rule. It's a challenging thing for, for Benedictine monks to hear because we sort of worship the rule, like the Quran. You know, it's just like the Quran, you can't change it, you can't criticize it. But he, he uh, speaking, seeing the rule, which he loves and which he feels is a, you know, a great gift, uh, but he sees the rule in its historical context. And he points out, for example, in his commentary on this chapter 6, how, how, how short it is compared with the rule of the master, which was the rule that, that um, uh, Benedict was, was using and editing. And most of the rule of Benedict is taken directly from the rule of the master. But what he leaves out, what he, what he adds, is what is specifically uh, Benedict. But uh, the rule of the master has, has two long chapters on silence. And Benedict is, is quite uh, laconic, he says, quite, quite, quite short and 
and, and terse, really, about uh, silence. He says it's about avoid harmful speech, words that are not useful, words that are not productive, not positive, and also avoid good speech because the, the renunciation of words, words are a good thing, a good form of communication, but renouncing them, whether they're good or bad, is itself a higher good. And uh, he uh, applies this even to the relationship with the, um, with the superior. Um, any requests to a superior should be made with all humility and respectful submission. Uh, so important is silence that permission to speak should seldom be granted even to mature disciples, no matter how good or holy or constructive their talk. So quite a radical, very short, he doesn't explain why. He doesn't go into the commentary on why this is very useful, he takes it for granted, I suppose, that we would talk about this and we, we would be instructed uh, by life in community about why this kind of renunciation of good and bad words uh, is uh, supportive of the fundamental mission of the life. Um, but uh, it, it, leaves, it leaves us with many questions and maybe some confusion. Maybe it seems a little extreme. And the big question is, you know, the question if you're living in a monastery is, how do you actually apply this in the life in the monastery? And but no less is the question, how do you actually apply it as an object? And is this renunciation of speech something that you can understand and experience as meaningful and fruitful? We absolutely condemn in all places any vulgarity and gossip and talk leading to laughter. Don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we do not permit a disciple engage in words of that kind. So, challenging, uh, challenging, difficult uh, comments in that very short little chapter on silence. In chapter 42, he speaks about silence of the night in the, uh, after Compline. Begins by saying, at all times, monks should, should cultivate silence, but especially after, after Compline. So what is, what is this renunciation of words? Especially to us living in a, of the age of Twitter, the age of non-stop media chatter, 24-hour news, of mobile phones, text messages difficult it is, it is for us to turn off our mobile phone on the retreat. So, what does this mean? And how does it, say, compare with other forms of renunciation? 
in the spiritual life. <clears throat> I think for Benedict, this renunciation of words uh, is radical. It's not fundamentalist. Of course, he does, he does see the importance of words. Obviously, they're not using sign language. That's a rather romantic, uh, artificial kind of concept. So he clearly knew that people would, uh, would, would speak. But they speak out of the silence. And they speak from this shared silence and within this shared silence. So that when we do speak, we speak silence in a sense. And, and if we choose our words carefully and the tone of voice carefully, we're mindful in our speech. And we think before we speak. We, we won't disturb the silence that we have created, the fragile silence, it's always very fragile, um, that is built up through renunciation of speech at other times of the day or at other times of our lives. And what is the purpose of this? The purpose of this, the fundamental purpose of the life as Benedict sees it in the monastery, and that is to come to a state of continuous prayer. I think we need to see this chapter on silence and his thought about silence in connection with his instructions about the overstay, the divine office, these punctuation points during the monastic day, which oblate commits um, uh, him or herself to uh, according to the circumstances of their life. But uh, I think it is, a, it is a, an integral part of the oblate life that at certain times of the day we stop and we pray in this, in this form psalms and of the conventional prayers. <coughs> it's very easy whenever we have that kind of regular practice to turn the regular practice into, a, into an end in itself. And it becomes something legalistic. And in many monasteries, I think, it does become rather legalistic. It becomes, can become a little compulsive. We forget that the office was made for us, not we were not made for the office. And yet, uh, we would, we, the, the, the goal is to come to love these punctuation marks of our daily life. And not to feel guilty if we weren't able to say the office that we wanted to say. Not to feel guilty about it. It's not the most important thing in the world. There are priorities that would, that would, uh, that would be greater. However, on a normal day-to-day -day basis, these are things we, th these are moments that we would feel grateful for and appreciate and come to love. And as we build the rhythm of the divine office into our daily life, we find that it actually maintains and nourishes this life of silence 
So saying the office, in a strange way, helps us to renounce unnecessary words and unnecessary chatter, unnecessary foolish laughter. And that's what he's really saying. He's not saying, you know, you can never laugh, you, know, you can never uh, communicate, but, but do so consciously, mindfully, and prayerfully. And then you won't disturb the silence. And if you don't disturb the silence, then you will be able to enter into the continuous prayer, discover what that means, and that is the goal. And uh, the Vogue uh, makes it very clear how this um, concern about the oblate, uh, sorry, about the, uh, the, the monks uh, and the Christian search for continuous prayer, Jesus saying, pray without ceasing. But this goes right back to the very earliest concerns of the of the, of the early Christian <coughs> communities. How to do it? What does it mean? How do we transform our lives into continuous prayer? How do our lives become carried by this river of prayer? How do we find the spring of living water, which is the prayer of the Spirit within ourselves? That's the goal. <coughs> That's how Benedict sees in the great monastic wisdom that he inherited even, and that's how he sees the purpose of the life. That's why we practice the silence, and that's why we, we make those punctuation points during the day so um, important and give, give them such priority, as much priority as we can. The office is not ceaseless prayer. But it can be used to reach and to release that ceaseless prayer within us. It's a means, not an end. So again, uh, any monk living in any monastery or the many different kinds of monasteries around the world uh, needs to ask, what does this mean to me, to us, in the particular form of life uh, that we, in which we are living the rule, interpreting the rule. And it's true as a question for, the, for each, each of us here to see in what way does this wisdom of Benedict brought to us uh, through the rule but through the, the whole Christian tradition of prayer, prayer as the, the guiding force of life, how do we do it? How do we make sure that we, we don't get caught up in the empty chatter of the media and of, of you know, of, uh, uh, of a noisy world? How do we, how and when do we really renounce words? And how do we appreciate and use the opportunity of the divine office to punctuate our day and as with these strong moments where we remind ourselves of the goal of ceaseless prayer. Discover, as Father John reminds us, 
It's not my prayer, but his prayer that we are entering into. And I think we bring, uh, that's a very important little set of questions for contemporary Christians and uh, for the meaning of Christian spiritual life today. And I think we bring a certain element uh, to this uh, contemporary uh, expression uh, with our practice of meditation. Because by, by integrating these times of meditation into the office, into our daily life, we are showing how this can be woven together. That's why I, I was just going to suggest, I don't know, Corey, if you had uh, planned on this, but when, when we do the office, we should build the meditation into it. Were you planning that? Bill, Bill is going to conduct the office, so okay. Yeah, you're, so you're, you're going to do it. We'll have our meditation within within the office, office, and then 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 close it with the next with the Benedict or something like that. The product. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Good. I should have, shouldn't have doubted you. Thank you. That's great. <laughs>